So anyone in here ever fail? Yeah. Fail a test. Fail a DIY project. It looks easy. Pinterest made it look beautiful. But yours doesn't look like Pinterest. It looks more distressed in not the good way, right? You fail in a relationship. You try a backflip. You fail, and you're in the emergency room. You fail on a mission for God. You feel like God has called you to something, and you take a step of faith, and you fail. Everybody fails. The question is, what do you do next? What's the next step? How do you handle failure? Do you handle it like Thomas Edison, who was asked by a reporter, hey, we've heard that you have failed to make a light bulb in a thousand ways. And he responded, oh no, I've discovered a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. It's perspective. It's Henry Ford at almost the exact time said this, that failure, it's the opportunity to begin again, but this time more intelligently. How do we handle failure? So we have a failure for David today, and we're going to see what he does. And I think it's very instructive for us. It's a brilliant chapter. Second Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered, or linked in by that word again, to chapter 5. He again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. The word again connects us to chapter five. If you were here last week, what happened at the end of chapter five? Two battles in a row where the Philistines came out. David had just been anointed the united king of all of Israel. And immediately there is an attack by the Philistines. Not one attack, but two attacks. And so David, how does he respond after these two attacks from the enemy? He's like, we got to dive into God. This won't be the last attack of the enemy. This is not over. We're diving into God. When things get dark for you, maybe demonic. The enemy is attacking you. What do you do? You dive into God. That's what you do. You get into the light as quick as you can. It's, we need the ark here now. 
These attacks are not going to stop. Let's get the ark. And so what David does is he grabs the 30,000 chosen men. That might seem like a big number, but on a Saturday in September, how many people flock to Otzen Stadium? What, 55,000? How many people flock to Research Stadium? 55 people. It's a little different there. <laughs> right? It's not really that big of a number. It's a big number, but it's not astronomical. And they're all chosen men. I hope all of us want to be chosen men. That we're not satisfied being like on the sideline. We want to be a chosen man. That when the king is gathering his crew, he says, I want you. Now, why were they chosen? Why did David say, these 30,000 are the chosen ones? Why? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. So how do we become chosen men and women today? I think there's one of the most simple verses in the Bible that tells us how to do it. It's Romans 12, verse nine. And it says this, hate evil and glue to good. How do you become a chosen person? Super simple. Hate evil and glue to good. Notice it says hate, not, hey, don't do evil. It says actually hate the evil. There's a big difference between the two. Do you know that? Because there can be this thing where you're like, man, I wish I could do that evil. I wish I could sin that way, but I better not. Right? I wish I could go out and get drunk with my buddies and go crazy and fight and do all that stuff, but I shouldn't, so I won't. I wish I could go fornicate, but I'm not supposed to, so I won't. I wish I could look at that, but I won't. It's not saying that. It's saying you hate it. That's a different level, isn't it? There's no desire for it. It's actually, I hate those things. I want no part of it. And when my heart starts to desire that, I gotta start praying, Father, change my heart so that I hate it. Because sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. It ruins you. You're not choice anymore. You're not the choice cut. You're something else. And then you glue to good stuff. Well, Matt, how in the world do you do that? You have to change your appetite. Do you know you can do that? That the mind can actually change the things that it wants and desires. It's an amazing thing that God has given to us. I'll give you my best example. I happened to go to a country called Vanuatu for 10 months. And I lived in a grass hut, no running water, no electricity, no internet, nothing for 10 months. There was, there was no billboards, there was no television, there was no commercials, there was nothing. Something happens to your brain in that time. Like you just change. The, the other big way I changed was this. In America, like when someone's talking and you're having a conversation with them, the way that we non-verbally communicate that we're understanding what they're saying is we kind of do nods and like, oh yeah, okay. We do this. That's not what the Nevans did. 
when I'd be teaching in front of them, the way that they would tell me that they're hearing me non-verbally is they just raise their eyebrows. They sit like statues and then they just do this all the time. So you'd be like talking to them and like, well, you get a good point. And all the eyebrows would just go, you're like, wow, okay. So what happens after a couple of months is you start to do that. So you'll be talking to people and you'll just be like, eyebrows all the time. So I, I've got this, I fly into LAX, right? And I mean, culture shock. And I'm just trying to figure out like, where is the next flight from, from LAX to Medford. So I go up to this counter and there's this young flight lady. She's like my age. She was like 25 or something. She's telling me what to do. And guess what I'm doing? I'm doing the eyebrows at her. And finally she just says, do you have a problem, sir? And I was like, oh no. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, how do you recover from that? I've been 10 months in this island. That's all they do. Sure, buddy, whatever, right? There's just no, it was just like, I gotta go, all right? But here's what I noticed when I got into LAX and I had never encountered this before. I'd done a bunch of travel. I was bombarded with images. Like, it was so shocking and unsettling to my soul because for 10 months, I had not seen an image. And I was just amazed, just walking down what everybody else would just be like, oh, that's normal. To me was like, are you kidding me? What is this? You can change your appetite. Oh, it's hard, no doubt. It might be you need to take a fast from certain things and turn certain stuff up off and start saying, God, purify my heart. Set me apart from these things so I hate the evil and I glue to the good. I became a prude in the best sense of the word. I think that's how you become chosen. David chooses these guys out because they're special, right? And then he goes and he gets the ark. For 60 to 80 years, the ark had been lost. Is that crazy? Because if you know your scriptures, the ark is the number one thing in Israel. The most important artifact they have. Nothing is more important. It is the thing. But for 100 years, an entire lifespan of a group of people, this thing has been absolutely lost. Why? They got busy. We got roads to build. We got armies to train up. We got water systems put in. We got houses to fashion. And God got lost. Don't we do the same thing? Maybe not for 60 years, but 60 days, 60 months, 60 weeks. God gets lost in the busyness of life. And David's like, hey, we got an enemy attacking and it's coming. We got to recover. We got to bring this thing back in. Get the ark. And it describes it as this. The ark of God, which is called by the name Yahweh of hosts, literally in the Hebrew, Yahweh of the armies of heaven, enthroned on the cherubim. You read that and you sit up straight in your seat. Oh, yeah. There's a reverence and awe that's supposed to be had about this ark and who it represents, Yahweh. That's a hint 
about what's going to happen in a little bit. And David is like, this thing matters. Let's go get it. So they go down and they put it on a cart. Anyone remember the last time the ark was on a cart? 1 Samuel chapter six. The Philistines had stolen it in a, in a battle. It had caused some problems, hemorrhoids and a bunch of people, a bunch of other stuff, and they wanted to send it back. So what'd they do? They put it on a new cart and they send it back. So now David and his crew are like, well, I guess that's how you move it. Is that how you're supposed to move the ark of God? No, Numbers 4.15 says, the Levites were to move it. They were not to touch it. They were to put these poles into these loops that were fashioned on the side of it. And they were to hold the ark on their shoulders. People, not carts and animals. People were supposed to partner with God in moving his ark from one spot to another. Levites alone. But in their enthusiasm to get the ark, they're like, ah, what does it matter, you know? God's our BFF. He won't matter. He's the good Lord. Who cares? We're gonna find out. No, he's Yahweh of the hosts of heaven enthroned among the cherubim and there will be reverence and awe for him. Check it out. He is good, but he's not safe. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry. Because Yahweh had broken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of Yahweh that day. And he said, how can the ark of Yahweh come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of Yahweh into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and Yahweh blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 30,000 chosen men praising, right? You got the number one praise leader in history, David, author of 72 Psalms. You got musicians that are the best. It's all awesome. It's all amazing. We're, they're loving it. And then all of a sudden, lightning from heaven and someone's dead because God wasn't enjoying it. How interesting that is to me. Do we ever consider it in how we worship, in the songs we sing, in the way that we do things, if God's enjoying it? Or is all that matter is, am I enjoying this? Is this cool for me? Is this making me emotionally full? 
do we consider God, his name, is he first? Because here's what we're learning. To God, the end does not justify the means. Good end, bring the ark to the city of David, but doing it your way, the effective way, putting me on a cart, yeah, that's not gonna work because I told you how to do it. I told you how to move me from one place to the other. Don't we know how we do things matters, matter? If you're building a fence, right? Does it matter how you build the fence? Or does it just matter, just as long as I get the fence up? Does it matter if you're yelling and cussing and firing employees and getting angry at everybody? Does that matter? Sure it does. We know it matters. And for the believer, even more, because how we do things today is creating an echo that's gonna go out across eternity. It's like that old saying that says this. You sow a thought and you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. God cares about the journey, not just the destiny, not just, hey, get me from here and get me to Jerusalem. It's, I care about the journey because Matt, in every step that you take, you're creating something in you that's gonna go out through history. And you can't do it the wrong way, even if you get to the right spot, because it matters. And so Uzzah, this guy, reaches out and he's going to help God stabilize the ark. Does God need Uzzah's help? No, remember what happened in 1 Samuel. When they stole the ark, what happened? They put it in the temple of their God, Dagon. And what happened in the morning? Man, he had tipped over. And so they propped him back up. It's a bummer when your God has fallen and he can't get up, right? And then the next day they come back and what happens? This time he's fallen over and his head's fallen off and his hands have fallen off. And they're like, daggone it, get back up, bro. And so they got to glue their God back together like Humpty Dumpty. And then they move him out from there and then a plague of hemorrhoids hits that city. They move it to another city, a plague of hemorrhoids and rats hits that city. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Does God need Uzzah's help? Mm -mm. No. Uzzah had grown accustomed to the ark. It had been in his house for his whole lifetime. He'd gone, like, oh yeah, I know this thing. I know it. Oh, oh, do you? No, you don't. God is good, but he's not safe. Beware. And he knew better. He was a Levite. He knew better than to touch the ark, but he had just grown accustomed. God is my BFF. That kind of way of looking at God instead of the reverence and awe that he is the captain of the host of heaven and he is enthroned in the cherubim and there better be reverence for God. It's like this. Nuclear power is good but dangerous, is it not? If I go digging around Chernobyl and end up getting killed from nuclear problems, whose fault is it? Is it the nuclear problem? It's my problem. I know better than that. He was digging around where he should not have been. And he gets smitten by God. And so David, 
He wants God in Jerusalem. He wants his presence in there because he knows the enemy is coming, but he doesn't do it the right way. So he wants God's blessing, but he doesn't want to do it God's way. You ever been there? God, I want your blessing, but I don't really care to do it your way. God says, yeah, I'm not gonna participate in that. You need to hate the evil and glue to the good. There is a right way to do this. And so they pack it all up, put the kazoos away, put the clarinets away, they put the drums away, and David is angry at God and afraid of God. And so they take the ark that's just killed somebody and they go put it in Obed-Edom's house. How do you think he felt about that? Hey, can we store this at your house? Sure, why? It just killed somebody. Hey, kids, don't touch that thing. I don't think I'd want it in my house. But it happens. His house is blessed. It's God saying to David, the ark's not the problem, David. You're the problem. The ark's a blessing, but it's you and the way that you chose to bring it in. That's the problem. You failed in that. So what does David do? Look what he does with his failure. And it was told King David, Yahweh has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, carrying it the right time, the right way this time, no more on a cart the way the Philistines did, but now Levites bearing it on their shoulders Numbers 4.15, when those that bore the ark of Yahweh had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before Yahweh with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of Yahweh with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So what did David do? Did he give up? No. He got in God's word. Wow, oh wait, Numbers 4.15. That's how we're supposed to do it. When you fail, what do you do? Proverbs says this, the righteous man will fall down seven times, but he'll get back up. And you get back up. We've all done stupid things. I think about 16 years at Edgewater and all the stupid things that I've done. And most of them, the problem with me, the most of them have been recorded in some sense. So they're on a CD somewhere. I wanna like gather them all up and burn them. Like everything before 2012, burn it. And anyone who went to church before that has to be killed. I'm sorry. It's like, Uzzah, you gotta die. Right, there's that. But it's, hey, everyone does it. Everyone fails. Everyone, what are you gonna do next? Because the righteous man will fall down seven times. But he'll get back up. It's you have the opportunity to begin again more biblically. All right, Lord, that wasn't it. Teach me, train me, help me to begin more biblically. Now at six paces and he stops. Before it was a cart, right? That's efficient. We'll get you there really quick. God doesn't care about efficiency. He cares about effectiveness. Now David has slowed down so slow now. We take six steps, we stop, 
We sit there and we sacrifice an oxen and we sacrifice a fatted calf and we're taking it slow because last time it was the speedy cart that caused a bump and Uzzah reached out and tried to stabilize and help God and he was struck down. That's not happening again. We're going slow. No more bumps because God doesn't care about efficiency. He cares about effectiveness. And it feels like God is slow in your life right now. Be thankful. No bumps and no deaths. Thank you. Go as slow as you want, God, because I don't want bumps and I don't want death. So slow down. And David just starts to, he's just overjoyed by this moment. We're doing it biblically. We're doing it the right way. We've got the right goal and we're doing it the right way. And he just starts to dance. He used to get questions 10, 15 years ago. Can Christians dance? My answer was always, some can and some can't. <laughs> I can't. I look like a frog in a blender. I learned that in the seventh grade at a sock hop. No more dancing for me. David can dance. And he starts getting hot and he starts shedding his clothes and he's down to what we would call today his undergarments at the end, dancing in this linen ephod, like wholehearted worship. And here's what happens. As the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of Yahweh and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. So Michael looks out, sees David, despises him. Now my question is, why is she at home? Because verse 15 says, all the house of Israel came out. It's this giant celebration. It's not just 30,000 before, it's everybody is invited now. It's not you gotta have the golden ticket to do this. It's anyone and everyone can join in this bringing of the ark from Obed-Edom's house to the city of Jerusalem. You're all invited now, but she's not there. Why not? I don't know. Maybe because if you remember to 1 Samuel 17, she had a little idol called the teraphim. Maybe she's not a worshiper of Yahweh. I don't know why. She's at home when she should have been celebrating, when she should have been worshiping. And she looks out and she sees David in an ephod dancing with all his might and she's like, that is not kingly, and despised him. She loved the warrior, David, that went and killed 200 Philistines and took a certain part of their body as her bride price. She loved that side of David, but she didn't love the worshiper 
part of David. Know this, and you know this if you're here getting married. You marry both the warrior and the worshiper. And you learn to love both. Not, oh, I despise one part and love the other. Hey, it's a package deal, Lord. No one's perfect, and I get that, and I accept who this person is. She couldn't, and she despises him. So David dances in, done. He's got all this meat, right? There's a lot of animals that he's killed. So he just starts dividing the meat up and just sending each person home. Take it, take it, take it. Just generous. Best day ever right here for him. He's like, wow, this was the best day ever. And then he's gonna go home. And you get one of the most interesting stories on marriage in the Bible. This is how not to do marriage. Check this out. We'll take it slow. <laughs> Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. I just love that. He is clueless. He is stoked. To him, this is the best day ever. He cannot believe how great it is. He might still be in his undies right there at the door. I don't know, right? He is absolutely like on cloud nine. I love men, man. Just, we're clueless. That was awesome, right? This is so great, woohoo, right? He is a lamb being led to the slaughter because the next phrase says this, but... Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. I bet she did. I can't wait to TiVo this in eternity. Like, you can see her just marching. He didn't know what was headed for him. She certainly did. I'm gonna straighten this guy out. I'm gonna tell him the way it is. And this is what she says. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Modern translation. David, you acted like trailer trash. That's what she says to him. He's on cloud nine, right? Coming through the door to bless his household. He's probably carrying a big piece of barbecue. And his wife meets him at the door and says, you're no better than trailer trash. Now, pause for a moment. Was she right in trying to say, hey, dancing in your underwear in front of a bunch of ladies, maybe not the best idea, honey. Was she right in saying that? Probably, right? She had a point to make that at some level, you have to say, yeah, that's legitimate. How about her methods? Right method? Right goal, no doubt about it. Wrong method. It's exactly the same story as David. Right goal, I want the ark to be in Jerusalem. Wrong method, can't be on a cart. Like these are mirror stories of each other. 
Michael has the right goal. Honey, you, pro- you probably better watch it when you're dancing and you strip down to just, you know, you uncovered yourself in ways that you probably shouldn't as a king. Right, totally right goal in it. But man, her methods cannot be any worse. And he responds, women, he responds like every man responds when they are disrespected. He's gonna respond exactly the way that 99.99% of men respond when they are disrespected like this. When they walk through the door after a long day and they get hit in the face with accusations and your trailer trash, this is how men respond. Number one, He brings up the past. Anyone ever have a marriage disagreement where the past gets brought up? Or or is it all like, no, I've just forgiven that and forgotten it. Right? We all are archaeologists when we get to fighting. Dig up some dirt and start throwing it. That's what he does. Check this out. And David said to Michael, It was before Yahweh who chose me above your father (laughs) and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel and over the people of Israel. And I will celebrate before Yahweh. What did he just say? Remember, her dad was Saul the previous king that had ruled before David. And Saul had been removed by God and all of Saul's descendants and David was put in that position. So what does David say to her? Oh yeah? (laughs) Your dad and all your brothers, God took them out and put me in their place. I'm better than all of them. What's behind that conversation? There's a whole bunch, isn't there, that have been happening in that home where Michael had probably been comparing David. Well, my dad didn't do that. Well, my dad did it this way, right? And David now, that bitterness from being compared to her dad time and time again, now in the heat of this battle, it's that is just scab is ripped off and it's bitterness gone crazy. Oh, yeah? I'm better than your dad and all your brothers. Brings up her past, throws it in her face, explodes. Number two, he gets brutal with her. I, verse 22, will make myself yet more contentable than this and I will be abased in your eyes. What did he just say right there? Honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think dancing in my underwear is bad? You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be so vile, it'll make me feel dirty. That's what he's saying. Doesn't tell us how. Glad he doesn't. But this is a heated battle. And he is turning the heat up on her. It's brutal. This is the opposite of what she wanted, is it not? She wanted him to be like, you're right, honey. I probably shouldn't have danced into my undies in front of a bunch of ladies. You're right. Thank you for helping me see that, sweetie. 
What's she getting? The exact opposite. Her way of dealing with her husband is pushing him to be even more like she does not want him to be. Are you getting that? Be careful, ladies. That the way that you can interact with your husband can actually push them to be more like you don't want them to be. Because your methods matter. The end does not justify the means. That there's a way and a right way to speak and care for your husbands and to nurture what you most want in them. She's doing it the wrong way, right? So he says, and, oh, but, this is the last one. <laughs> it's a raw kind of honest moment here. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. This is a raw, honest moment. You have disrespected me. And I will find respect somewhere else. Do you know that? When a man is disrespected in his home, he will go find respect somewhere else. In his hobbies, in his workplace, in something, or in a woman. They'll go find it somewhere else. So he's like, oh yeah? Those ladies that you're making fun of, I'm gonna get honor by them. Whew. And then Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. He breaks in his intimacy. Why doesn't she have kids? Pretty simple. There was no more intimacy. Right? That part of that relationship was cut off. The New Testament puts it like this, real simple. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Long discussion, summarized super simply. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. At the core of what men need, at the core of what women need, two simple needs. Men need to feel respected. There's something in us. It happened with Adam when Adam failed. Every man feels failure in his soul. And if he feels that from his wife, it breaks something deep within him. And so men need respect. And women, same thing. Something happened when Eve ate of that fruit. There was a hole in her heart that her deepest need was love. Those two things, both of them gone right here. David is disrespected. and Michael has no more love broken, love and respect. And by the way, we're having a conference called Love and Respect in September. I'm signed up for it. If you're married, it's gonna open up to the public. When we did uh, the last one with Gary Chapman, we had people from Montana, from San Diego. So if you're interested, get signed up before it goes and opens up to the the whatever, Pacific, whatever they're opening it up to. He opens it up at some point, so get signed up. You will be blessed, right? So three quick notes on this, and then we're done. Number one, don't mock the spirituality of others. David says, I did this before the Lord. 
He is despised and mocked by his wife. Be careful of that. There's much better ways of going about it. Criticalness always kills fruitfulness, right? She has no fruitfulness from this point on. Don't mock the spirituality of others. Ask questions about it. Listen really carefully. Those are good ways of going about it, but never mock and despise it. Number two, you have to do the right thing in the right way. We get two almost identical examples of it. There's two deaths. Uzzah gets killed, and Michael, her future, her family, her intimacy, her marriage gets killed. Because in life, God cares about both the end and how we get there. He wants things done the right way with the right goal. That motives matter, that how we do things matters. And so I pray this, I don't know how often, multiple times a day, I will pray James chapter three. Today, I need wisdom from above. Wisdom that's peaceable. Wisdom that's pure. Wisdom that leads to righteousness. Because I wanna do the right thing in the right way with the right goal today. We need to pray that over and over and over. Because David, smart dude that loves Jesus, major mistake. Somebody dies because of it. I don't want people dying around me. Jesus today, give me James 3 wisdom so I take the right way to get to the right goal because it matters. And then thirdly, when David becomes king in chapter five, maybe you're here last week, united, he's anointed, man, it should be a big deal. No party was thrown. No celebration was thrown. David's like, cool, all right, good. And then just moves on. But when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem, what does David do? What does he kill? 500, 600? I don't know how many animals he kills. Like herds of animals. There was this massive party. Celebrates, goes crazy. Not his own accomplishment. He became king. No, it's the Ark came to Jerusalem and I'm throwing a massive party. What we celebrate tells me the condition of my heart. What do I celebrate? My achievements, how great I am, the cool things I've done, or do I celebrate when the kingdom of Jesus is being built, when great things are happening to people because of him, when his name is glorified, when he is honored? Do I celebrate those things? It tells a ton about my heart personally. David's heart here is, I don't really care about me being coming the king. I'm gonna celebrate when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem and resides where it belongs. We throw a giant party. What do you celebrate? I hope and pray we are a people that celebrate the kingdom of Jesus because that's what lasts. That's what brings me true joy. That's what transcends these temporary little bumps and ups and downs. It's him, his name, his kingdom. So Jesus today, may we be a people that hate evil and glue to the good. May you give us wisdom personally on how we should walk that out even today. That there's fasting from 
certain things that we need to do to change our appetites, would you make those apparent to us today? May we be a people that evaluate motives that don't buy into the utilitarian lie that the ends justify the means they do not. There is a right way of dealing with people. There is a right way to carrying out the purposes and the good works and the goals that you put before each one of us this day. And may we seek your guidance and your wisdom to doing the right things in the right way. I pray for our marriages in here. I pray that men would love their wives and wives would respect their husbands. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.